0: I'm Amy Silverman, and I'm co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month, we give writers a theme and invite them to tell their true stories on stage. This month's theme, Promises. First up, Sativa Peterson questions her non-beliefs in Magic Hill.
1: My mom was a lapsed Mormon, so lapsed to the point that she let us drink coffee as small children. I always told her, I could never be a Mormon because I was a feminist. And why would any organization want to limit itself to 50% of its potential brain power? And if you excluded all women from leadership positions, that's what you were doing. My mom and I talked about it because, by and large, it was the women who were the remaining believers in our extended family, not the men. We didn't have any Mormon men. My dad wasn't Mormon, so it seemed to me we were kind of screwed. You can't get into Mormon heaven, I mean the really desirable one, without a man. Still, when my mom died, we picked out hymns and made arrangements for her funeral at the local Mormon church. She was back despite all of her reticence. I was in my 30s and suddenly I was the matriarch. This shift in my role brought on a strong desire to believe in something. Oh, I didn't want to believe in Mormonism, but I wanted to believe in these women who'd come before me. So. I decided to travel to upstate New York to visit the Hill Cumorah, one of the holiest sites in Mormondom. Maybe by seeing where we had come from, I could figure out how to move forward. The Hill Cumorah is a literal hill uh, where each summer the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints puts on a theatrical extravaganza called the Hill Cumorah Pageant. This is the spot where, in 1827, Joseph Smith was visited by an angel and instructed how to retrieve a set of golden tablets, which were unearthed and translated into the Book of Mormon. I invited my friend Lila to join me. In a couple of weeks, it would be the one-year anniversary of my mom's death. Going to the hill with Lila was an attempt at some kind of ritual to observe the loss of her. It was an attempt to close a loop. On the day of the pageant, I landed in Rochester, New York. Lila, who lived in Brooklyn, was already there in her beat up Volkswagen Jetta, waiting to whisk me up curbside. Lila, not a Mormon. She and I had been friends since college. We were both theater majors. I collapsed into the passenger seat. I made it, I announced. What happened? She said. I had to change planes at JFK where it was pouring rain. It was raining so hard, the plane just sat in the surging storm, never pushing away from the gate. Biblical amounts of rain poured from the skies. Sitting on the tarmac, I was like, this can't be happening. I just want to see a magic hill with my friend Lila. (laughs) What did you do, said Lila. I prayed. I can't even say it with a straight face. Lila laughs. That's right, I prayed. I exaggerate, sweeping my arms out in a big arc. So I think this whole process was to wear me down to the point where I would even consider such a thing. Lila, who's Jewish, arches her eyebrows at me. That's what it took. It took that kind of torture to get me to say, I surrender. Just get me to the hill. I'll accept the message you want me to receive. Lila loves it. She's sizing me up. Oh, now you're bound to accept the message, she says. We both crack up. I've asked Lila to join me because we've both lost our mothers. She lost hers a couple of years before me, And she doesn't find any impulse I have about coping with that loss to be too off the wall. Lila and I head east toward the Hampton Inn where we have a reservation. At the hotel, Lila throws on a red hoodie that says, Sorry, ladies. I only date models. (laughs) I show her an 8x10 photograph of my mother's grandmother, Pearl at her 80th birthday. According to my mother, it was a lifelong wish of pearls to see the Hill Camora, so I've slipped the photo into a protective plastic sleeve so I can bring her with us. The pageant is billed as America's most spectacular outdoor theatrical event, and there are 8,000 free seats. As we park the car and approach the Hill, There's lovely music being piped across the hillside. Hymnal, swelling, nicely uplifting. Both Lila and I like it. Plus, it smelled good. I kid you not, the whole hillside smelled like baked goods. Lila and I wonder if there is a special Camorra scent being piped in. We would definitely buy the candle. We are giddy, arriving just minutes before showtime. We grab two empty seats. The rain that had come down all afternoon and almost prevented my arrival has cleared up as if on cue so that the pageant can take place. Horns blast. The show is beginning. The Messiah! My father said he would come. Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? Holy shit. Lila and I turned to stare at each other, mouths agape. Lila whispers to me, this is really good, cheesy Bible language. (laughs) Yes, I say, it's so declarative. We are in amazement. There are nearly 700 live performers. The stage is several stories high. The show, which depicts stories from the Book of Mormon, includes bursting flames, a shimmering tree of life, a raging sea storm, a volcanic explosion, At one point, even a glowing Jesus floats down from high. We are wrapped in the performance. In the summer night, in being on an adventure together. The minute it is over, we squeeze each other's hands. We can hardly contain ourselves. We walk across the field, back to the parking lot. Lila closes her car door and immediately begins. Oh my God, the mist, she says. And the smoke, I mean, come on. I know, I say, and a shipwreck. That was a pretty good show. It was a really good show, she says. The Lord saith, good show. (laughs) We head to the hotel satisfied with the night's outing. We decide that we will go back the next night to watch the show again. We get there early. Beforehand, the performers mingle in the field, with the audience. Up close, the detail on the costumes is insane. We find whole families in costume. Lila, who's now wearing a t-shirt that says, breather achiever, whispers in my ear, these costumes are really NFA. They're not fucking around. I've got my picture of Pearl, and I keep showing it to people. No one seems to think it's weird that I'm carrying around a picture of my dead great-grandmother. They're saying things like, I hope you enjoy the show. I bet she'll enjoy it as well. It's friendly. I'm agreeing with them. There are tons of kids here, I say. Yes, but look, says Lila, there's a lot of cotton tops, too. The peak of our excitement comes when we have our picture taken with the man who is playing the prophet Mormon. We wanted to find Joseph Smith, too, but couldn't, which is well enough since Lila keeps calling him John Smith. (laughs) However, this time, after the performance ends, both Lila and I come away feeling very differently than we had the night before. This time, in the car, Lila says... I was enjoying this production for a second night, which is rare, when I realized, oh, this is truth for these people. Right, I say. This is not just mythological musical theater about Christ in the Americas. (laughs) No, says Lila. When I realized that, I was like, this plays very differently for me now. Yes, I say. What do you think the takeaway from the show is, asks Lila. I don't know, I say. I guess it's something like, stay sweet no matter what. Stay sweet no matter what, Lila repeats. Yeah, obedience is definitely a virtue. That's tricky for me, I say. Lila continues, the Jehovah's say we get to come back here to earth and live for eternity. I had a long conversation with the Jehovah's at my door once because I was like, eternity is a long time. <laughs> like, boring, says Lila. Well, I'd like a nice long run, I'd say. Yeah, sure. But eternity? And the Jehovah woman was like, but you're an artist. You'll constantly find new things to learn. And I said, Eternity eternity lady that's like the earth is finite only so many blades of grass on this earth after eternity you've looked at every single one of them true i say at a certain point let's face the mystery at breakfast the next morning we are still processing the pageant over much needed cups of coffee and omelets Lila asks why it was important for me to be here. In the Mormon church, members can receive something called a patriarchal blessing. This is a blessing given by a stake patriarch, always a man, to a church member. It's supposed to be specific to the person receiving it, pointing out their strengths and their life path. But what about a matriarchal blessing? Officially? there is no such thing which got me thinking matriarchal blessings may not be given in the form of a church sanctioned prayer but mother magic has been placed upon us guides us how to recognize this invisible force i take a sip of coffee and say to lila what could i do for my mother now that she's gone What would I do if I thought she could have some benefit on the other side? That's a good question, says Lila. I guess for me it's just being happy. Just being happy is something I do for my mom. I look at my friend's face, see the morning sunlight shining into the diner. Maybe you're right, I'd say. Maybe that's the pact. That's the matriarchal blessing at its most basic. Enjoy the life your mother gave you.
0: That was Sativa Peterson. Next, Ada Martin takes us back in time to her childhood in New York City with Unlearning My Mom's Lessons.
2: So, I grew up in New York City in the 70s and 80s during a time when kids raced home after school, then ran outside and played until the street lamps went on. Neighbors spent summer days hanging on the stoop, gossiping, while La Lupe blared loudly from someone's open window. Kids chased after ice cream trucks, and splashed joyfully in the stream of the open fire hydrant. That's the way it was for most kids in the 70s and 80s in New York City. But not for me. I wasn't allowed to do shit. (laughs) My parents had me later in life. My dad was 50 and my mom was 46. When I was born, so let's just say I was a huge surprise. (laughs) My parents divorced when I was five, but they managed to end things amicably. And they agreed to co-parent me without legal intervention, which was unusual for the time. Nowadays, you see stars like Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin declare that they have decided to consciously uncouple and co-parent their children. That was not a thing back in the day. Back then, people got divorced, hated one another, and then they had their lawyers hash out the custody agreements. Looking back, perhaps my parents were able to do things differently because they were older, more mature, and they had both been through previous marriages. My dad, had a daughter from his first marriage. She's six years older than me. And my mother had a son from a former marriage who is 18 years my senior. He was already out of the house by the time I was born. So I basically grew up as an only child. I lived with my mom in a two bedroom apartment in the city and my dad, a New York City public school teacher, an adjunct college professor, had a key to our apartment, so I saw him every day after school and on weekends. My dad was an immigrant, and my mom a first-generation American, so in addition to my parents being older than most of my friends' parents, they also were from vastly different cultural backgrounds. My dad, Jose, was born in Panama in 1919, And he came to the U.S. in 1945 after studying in Mexico for a few years. Despite being extremely smart, job opportunities were limited. So he worked at various hotels as a cook, attending City College at night in pursuance of an undergraduate degree in Spanish, and working during the day to make ends meet. Eventually, he graduated with his degree from City College, and then went on to pursue an M.S. in education from Columbia University, then a second M.S. in supervision and administration in education from Baruch College, where he would eventually teach in the later years of his life, and finally a Ph.D. in sociolinguistics from Universidad Autónoma in Spain at the age of 70. So to say that education was important to my dad would be an understatement. He worked in the public school system in New York City for over 30 years. And because of his experience with what he deemed to be a less than stellar educational system, he decided to send my sister and me to private school. I had a great relationship with my dad. I adored him and he adored me. I always felt his love. My relationship with my mom, on the other hand, was a bit more contentious. My mom was born in 1923 in New York City, where she grew up for the most part of her life, but she also lived in Barbados, the birthplace of both her parents for a time. She worked in the city at Bankers Trust during my childhood, but unlike my dad, who was the life of the party, my mom was extremely antisocial. Basically, she thought people were generally trash. (laughs) She didn't have many friends, and she seldom left the house, which I later realized was probably because she was suffering from clinical depression. Despite her grumpy disposition, she had a great sense of humor. It was extremely dry, either you got it or you didn't, either way Ruby, my mom, could care less. (laughs) She really gave no fucks (laughs) about whether you thought she was funny or not. She had no problem telling you as much. I resented my mom a lot as a child. My dad was so loving and affectionate towards me My mom only showed affection when I was hurt or sick. She rarely said, I love you. I could probably count the times that it happened. She was also extremely overprotective. I wasn't allowed to associate with the neighborhood kids because she didn't think they were good enough for me. My only friends were my school friends, but they all lived far away. So I only hung out with them at school and occasionally at their homes for afternoon playdates. In essence, I felt stifled. When my friends had sleepovers, I could go to the party, but I wasn't allowed to spend the night. I had to go home essentially before the fun really started. I remember asking my mom one day if I could spend the night at my best friend's house. My mom knew her parents well and was friendly with them, but yet she looked at me like she was completely confused by the question. She said, you have a big room with your own bed. Why in God's name would you want to sleep on a bag on someone's floor? I pay good money for that bed. (laughs) During my high school years, my mom loosened up a bit. On weekends, I had a midnight curfew and had to be home exactly at midnight. Which, of ki- which kind of made it all not worth it, because if you know anything about New York, you know that shit doesn't happen until 12. <laughs> I didn't complain, though. I took what I could get, and I fully understand, understood that I better walk through that door by midnight, or I would be in a lot of trouble, because as I said earlier, my mom did not play. I remember one time during high school, I went to a party at this guy's house that I barely knew. It was getting late, I didn't want to go home, so I decided I'd stay and deal with the consequences later. So I'm hanging out, I'm listening to music, drinking and smoking, then suddenly, the phone rings. The kid who lives at the house yells out, it's for you, I of course think it's a joke, because no one knows that I'm there. I pick up the phone and on the other end, I hear my mom's voice, where the hell are you? Come home. My overprotective mom didn't relent when I reached adulthood either. I came to Arizona in my late teens to attend ASU. The plan was that my mom would eventually move out here to retire. My mom finally moved to Arizona when I was in my 20s around the time I was finishing up school, and I moved in with her to save money. I didn't have a curfew, but we had an understanding that out of courtesy, I would call if I was gonna be out late. Around that time, I had just started dating someone new, and like 20-year-olds often do, we decided to go out on a Friday night. So Friday turned into Saturday. And Saturday into Sunday, and before you know it, Monday rolled around, and the party was still going. I can't recall. It may have been a long weekend. (laughs) At any rate, we wound up drinking at Casey Moore's, my favorite college bar, where I knew all of the bartenders on a first-name basis. So we're drinking and hanging out, and then the phone rings, and I hear one of the bartenders yell out, Ada, it's your mom, she wants to know when you're coming home. If the floor opened and swallowed me whole at that moment, I would have been eternally grateful. All my life, I've been fighting against turning into my overbearing mother. As a child, I wanted freedom, I wanted to be able to do what I wanted when I wanted, In essence, I just really wanted to be able to establish my own unique identity. So I vowed at a young age that when I had kids, I would never be like my mom. And for the most part, I think I've been successful, but not without struggle. I've inherited some of my mom's depressive tendencies, and I fight on a daily basis against being too introverted. I try to maintain regular contact with my friends by setting up dinner dates and social outings. Even when I'm not feeling particularly social, I make myself go out and do things for fear that I will become like my mom, overly reclusive. I have my own kids now, and in my estimation, I'm a hell of a lot cooler than my mom which, truthfully, isn't that hard. I dress fly. I listen to Anderson Pac and Childish Gambino. I know how to dab. I even allow my kids to have freedom of expression. They say things to me that I would would never have been allowed to say to either of my parents. I also, unlike my mom, am very affectionate with my kids. I tell them that I love them every chance that I get. I engage them in conversation. We talk about real issues. And I ask for their input when making important family decisions. So when my daughter, at the age of 12, first asked me if she could sleep over at a friend's house, I didn't yell or scream. I listened to her. I really took time to consider what she had to say. I took a deep breath and then said, sleepover? Why the hell would you want to do that? You have a perfectly good bed right here.
0: That was Ada Martin. Now Katie Campbell tells a story about a family legacy no one wants in Of Barney and Brett Kavanaugh.
3: I went home recently to say goodbye to my grandma. And that's bad enough already, saying goodbye to someone you love. But it was worse, although worse really isn't the right word for it because the very first thing she wanted to tell me about was how she'd been assaulted as a teenager. By the time the doctors discovered the cancer spreading throughout her body, it was too late for treatment. So when I saw her, she was so much smaller than I'd ever seen her before. Her once indestructible perm, flattened and gray. But luckily for our family, her mind was all there right up until the very end. My same kind of kooky, kind of sassy, always out there grandma. But this wasn't that. She was watching the news from her bed where she spent most of the day in those final days. And someone was speculating about whether Brett Kavanaugh would get the votes he needed to become Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And she just launched into this story. In the week or so before my visit, she'd been following the news about Christine Palazzi Ford, watching her testify in D.C. and listening to the endless commentary about did he or didn't he. And at some point in the middle of all of that, at 77 years old, she suddenly remembered. She suddenly remembered that some guy, some boat guy, working on the ferry that takes you to the Statue of Liberty grabbed her 60 years earlier. She didn't say much more about what happened after that, but she talked a lot about how embarrassed she was, how embarrassed she was for what he did. It was her senior trip a trip she had traveled all the way from Philly for. She was getting ready to graduate high school, but she didn't even walk at her graduation. She said she couldn't bring herself to go back to school after that as if everyone knew and blamed her. She had to have her brother take her books back to the school for her. Looking back, she realized he must have known something was wrong, but you just didn't talk about that stuff back then, and no one else is around to talk about it now. The embarrassment was so overwhelming that she just kind of forgot about it, or more accurately. She blocked it entirely from memory, always sensing this looming shadow in the back of her mind, but just choosing not to acknowledge it. That is, until it was right there on the TV screen being questioned by a bunch of politicians. She told my mom first. My mom was her rock, not just in her last weeks, but for most of her life. My mom is everyone's rock. She's one of four, but she spent the most time with my grandma, A, because she lived the closest, and B, because she was the most responsible, the most caring, the most selfless, the most patient. And so she was also the first to hear this story. I wasn't there for that telling, but I can imagine how she must have felt. I was stunned, to say the least, but more so because I was so angry inside, and she wasn't. I specifically remember her saying she wasn't having nightmares, and I remember that because it was my first thought, like, oh my god, this is haunting my grandma in her last weeks. Fuck that guy. But that wasn't the case at all. She said she was relieved to finally talk about it after burying it in her memory for decades. Decades. It took a complete stranger's courage to shake that memory loose and to reassure my grandma that she was not only allowed to remember that moment but also to talk about it decades later. Every generation wants their children to have more than they did. I assume anyway, I don't have kids, I just want to raise my cats in peace. There was always this unspoken promise that my life would somehow be better. It went without saying that I was going to college, that I was going to see the world, and that I was going to be safe. And I think my grandma really took solace in the fact that women are now not just talking about sexual harassment and assault, but publicly calling out their attackers and leaving them to feel that embarrassment that haunted her for decades. That even if, just, that even if Brett Kavanaugh was Justice Brett Kavanaugh, he too was going to feel that heat rise into his pasty cheeks. For the next week I was with my grandma, she did this Kavanaugh impression over and over. (laughs) I like beer, she would say, in the closest she could come to a deep caveman-esque voice, making these exaggerated hand motions. It wasn't SNL-worthy, but I thought it was pretty damn funny too. (laughs) She was funny and she was warm, sometimes fiery, willing to stand up for herself. I went back and forth a lot about whether this is the story I wanted to tell you because these stories inevitably define the people in them. Victim. That's just not who my grandma was. She was an avid cyclist, reader, and smoker, the latter of which led to the cancer that took her life. When I was little, she spoiled me rotten with dollar store toys and let me do the dishes, even though I mostly just played with the water. I slept over a lot when my mom worked late, and she'd sleep in the guest room with me, listening to me prattle on and on for hours until I finally closed my eyes. She wasn't a very good cook, pretty bad cook, actually. But she always had ice cream in the house, and she let me dip ginger snaps in her coffee. I blamed my sweet tooth and the extra padding around my hips on her. I only took one thing of hers when I came back to Phoenix, a photo from my third birthday. My grandpa's holding me, my grandma's holding my cousin, and in the middle, there's my hero, Barney the Purple Dinosaur. And my face says it all, my life peaked that day, folks. I am smiling so big that my head is kind of jutting forward to emphasize how big I'm smiling, and my arms are wrapped around Barney's giant snout. If you look just carefully enough, you can see my dad's eye peeking out of Barney's nostril. But if I noticed he wasn't at the party, I didn't care because Barney was there and that was really all that mattered. I smile almost as big every time I look at that picture. It wasn't just me, pure joy radiates from it. Grandpa's smiling, my cousin is smiling, although I convince myself, I detect the slightest hint of jealousy. And grandma's mid-laugh head slightly tilted like she's getting a glamour shot taken. It all looks so perfect. It was perfect. I haven't framed it yet because it almost hurts to see how perfect it was. Brett Kavanaugh and that guy from the ferry didn't exist that day. It felt strangely empowering to talk about that shadow that lurks behind so many of us. It is so energizing to know you aren't alone, but also so deeply, thoroughly painful. My grandma didn't want sympathy. She wanted to know that things would change. Maybe not for her daughter, but certainly for her daughter's daughter, for me. And in so many ways, that unspoken promise has been kept. I have had more in my life than she ever could have dreamed. Hello, Barney was in my house. But that shadow that hid in the depths of her memory follows me, too. The difference is, I never figured out how to tell her.
0: Katie Campbell. In The Healer, Jesse Tear keeps a promise on his own terms.
4: I swear to fulfill to the best of my ability and judgment, this covenant. That's what my grandfather said at his med school graduation in the early 1950s. And a lot of programs shied away from having graduates recite the traditional Hippocratic Oaths by the time my mother became an MD in the 80s. In early memory, I remember waiting up for her to come home after working late rotations. It's hard work, it's honorable hard work, healing folks. On summer days, my brothers and I would run around her office. It must have always been a real hope that one of us would carry on her dad's legacy. I remember sitting in on a prenatal ultrasound when I was about six years old. Hank, a giant, very hairy, and very lovable, imaging tech, showed an expecting mother her baby with a strange six-year-old standing by her side. That would not happen today. But one day my father dusted off his old set of Zeppelin vinyl. And then I turned my cello, a promising tool for reeling in a college scholarship, onto its side on my lap, and I strummed it like it was a guitar, a damned guitar. And the disappointment was clear when I told my folks that I wanted rock and roll to be my career path. So I quit the Phoenix Youth Symphony and got a ride to some seedy west side spot where I sold the poor cello, which at this point must have been a little bit confused about its own orientation. I walked down to ABC Music. It was a hole in the wall that housed a guitar teacher named Milo. And I got myself an electric guitar. It was bright yellow. It was a Gretsch. And it was so rock and roll. I'm so not rock and roll. But that guitar gave high school years a real purpose. I was hooked. And that guitar, being previously used and banged up, it didn't even come with a case. So I walked myself over to the music shop twice a week, sweating in the summer, holding the bright yellow Gretsch over my shoulder, and passing cars honked. Whistles came in my direction. I was never catcalled before then, and I haven't been since. But that guitar was a piece of crap, (laughs) but it made me feel so cool. And that's how I broke my mother's heart for the very first time. And with that, I broke some promise of doctoring that she continued to hold me to through the years. And now I realize how bad at songwriting I was at first. It was addictive, so I spent all my time on it. But not attending your classes at the University of Arizona gets you failing grades. (laughs) And so after one year in Tucson, I just drove away. I fled the state for California. As a college dropout with a handful of very poorly written songs (laughs) and a cloud of disappointment hanging over my childhood home in the rearview mirror. And some some failed bands later. I was back in Phoenix. I lived in my 94 Honda Accord, and bridges were still scorched with my family. I came back, though, to the promise of a new act. New guys, very talented guys but we still sucked in retrospect. (laughs) Then I started listening to Cash, real Americana music, real stories, and the first song that I ever recorded was about this promise that I never really set out to break. Say,
5: don't lose your way back home The world's a bigger place Now don't lose your way back home, the world's a bigger place. Now don't lose your way back home, the world's a bigger place. Now, boy.
4: Music is good when it's honest. And I knew that much. And I kept chasing it until I eventually had to grow the hell up. I think I just got tired of being poor, living in the car, falling asleep, standing upright on stockroom floors. So I decided to put the damn guitar away. And then a few years later, I graduated summa cum laude with a microbiology, Bachelor of Science from ASU. And in that last year of college, things were good with my folks again. Med school applications were in the works. I was about to head off to Africa to do HIV intervention work, but I couldn't go. I hadn't played guitar in years, but when my brother came back from Memphis, we started writing songs. I guess I just needed a partner in crime. So I lived a double life, writing a folk album with Adam while I got ready for medical school. And when we had that album finished, I gave all thoughts of Hippocratic Oaths and white lab coats up for good this time. And again came a high degree of parental disappointment and disownment. And I suppose that's how I broke my mother's heart a second time. But we were driving around the country. We were playing good music. And I met Lauren. And I wrote a song for her back then that might have been all about her and just as much about music. I didn't realize it at the time. I have the
5: same sweet dream under a cherry tree. I lay down my axe, I kiss your lips, and you send me relay. And love, it won't let me be. I hear a symphony. Every morning, I wake to the same refrain. Love has been you all along, knocking at my door, and I sing my battle hymns. You were a sweeter song. And you were in white, white, dressed like my honest lies. You took my hand, you ran down those steps, still don't know where it ends.
4: We first kissed on a stranger's front doorstep in San Diego, California. She had come to see me play a show there, and I fell madly in love with her that weekend. And after we married, Lauren asked me to make a different promise one that I could never have expected and one that I cannot break. She asked me to swear that I'll never stop writing music, that I'll never ignore this burning feeling in my gut to share music with you and to play my damn guitar. And Lauren is right. Folk music, all music, brings people together. And it's me being honestly me. And it turns out that it is healing. So maybe my mother is more right than she realized. Maybe someday she'll come around to it. So I couldn't, like my grandfather, swear to do no harm. But I can promise that I'll keep on making medicine. And I'm proud, most proud, that my little boy loves to sing and dance. And strum the damn guitar.
0: That was Jesse Tear. And in our last piece, Marin Shokaier keeps another promise, this one made to her husband, Jamie. Here's that's where the fun is.
6: What is your deal, I said to my husband. Why won't you try the drugs? I was sitting on our orange leather couch, earnestly using every technique I could think of to persuade my husband to do drugs. Trust me when I say this should not have been a hard sell. Jamie and I had been married about nine years, And from the very beginning of our relationship, he had openly and frequently waxed nostalgic about his college years at Miami University in Ohio. It was the early 70s, and he characterized those years as transcendental, thanks to meditation and better living through chemistry. (laughs) As a college football player, he'd stay relatively clean during the, the season, But off-season, he would try just about anything that promised to alter his mental state. He had a treasure trove of hilarious tales about hallucinating his way through the weekends. No wonder it took him five years to graduate. (laughs) Jamie was never embarrassed or ashamed when he talked about his fun with drugs. In fact, a wistful tone crept into his voice. A sentimental gleam beamed from his eyes, a reflection of the torch that he carried for this sexy, bad girl mistress, the one he loved passionately, even though he knew maintaining the relationship would mean a bad end. The thing is, more than four decades later, he was looking at a bad end. And I didn't understand his obstinate refusal to try the drugs. What I'm reluctant to tell you, mostly because I don't want you looking at me with pity, is that this conversation took place several months after Jamie was diagnosed with ALS. We were officially informed on June 5th, 2014, a few weeks before the Ice Bucket Challenge went viral on social media. When the neurologist rolled away from us on his little doctor's stool, his hands held up in a gesture of surrender, we already knew. We've ruled out everything else, Dr. Ortega said. He looked sheepish and apologetic because just six months before, he had ruled out ALS as the cause for the pain and weakness in Jamie's left neck and shoulder. We went home that afternoon and turned on the TV. Jamie found a James Taylor concert on PBS. And we sang along. So close your eyes. You can close your eyes. It's all right. And then we cried and cried. And then we talked because Jamie and I had always had that going for us. Conversation is what brought us together. It's what kept us together. It's what made us good together. And death had never been a topic that we backed away from. Both of us had lost loved ones, including our parents. Jamie had been with his mom when she died, and several years later, I was with mine. And we would often talk about how grateful we were for the privilege to be present for what was, in different yet similar ways, beautiful and sweet. We didn't view death as an enemy or a foe to be vanquished. We saw it as natural, the circle of life. We would express curiosity about the great mystery that lied beyond and then we'd agree we're not in a hurry to solve that riddle. We didn't understand people's desperate efforts to avoid the inevitable because we didn't fear death, only the decrepitude and dependence that might precede it. Dying in our sleep when we were really old and all used up, that was the way to go. But Jamie's diagnosis forced a conversational shift from the theoretical to a harsh reality. We knew Jamie's future would include decrepitude and dependence. Even so, as we cried and conversed on the orange leather couch that night, Jamie was adamant he would live until he died. I'm not going to stop being me, he said, when I lose my ability to move and maybe my ability to talk. I want people to remember I'm still in there. He asked me, kind of demanded, actually, that I make sure he died at home. Of course, I promised. Did it without hesitation and without thinking it through. We'd both known people who died of ALS, and I'd read Tuesdays with Maury, but other people's stories can never fully prepare you for the reality of this disease. Its conclusion is inescapable, but its path is completely unpredictable. When Jamie was diagnosed in June, he had a weak left shoulder and he walked with a slight limp. By July, he was clutching a cane. In August, as we traveled the country visiting loved ones, he was introduced to a walker. And when that became too exhausting, we pushed him in a wheelchair. In September, he was introduced to a motorized mobility vehicle. And by October, he was unable to drive the newly purchased mobility van. By November, it was difficult for him to read a book or lift a fork to his mouth. And by December, His arms and fingers were so weak, he could no longer flip a proper bird. That really pissed him off. What good am I if I can't even flip people off, he said. But you can still talk, I pointed out. You can still say, fuck you. (laughs) Oh, yeah, good point, he said, his expression brightening. By January, I was feeding him, and soon after our home opened up, to a rotation of caregivers who came to help him use the toilet to bathe and to dress. His rapid dependence left us exhausted, overwhelmed, breathless. It also ushered in a long series of hard decisions we thought we'd have more time to make. We said no to searching for miracle cures or unproven treatments that promised longevity and yes to a research study that might help other people with ALS. Jamie said no to a feeding tube, and we said yes to meals brought in by caring friends. We finally, reluctantly, said no to sleeping together, and yes to a high-tech hospital bed that would give us both a little bit more sleep. No way to a tracheotomy. Yes to a BiPAP machine. By March of 2015, Jamie could no longer laugh out loud, but he could talk. Not loudly and only between sips of the BiPAP machine, but he could talk and talking was our relationship lifeblood. We continued our rich conversations about death and life and the mundane usually over coffee in the quiet morning hours before the first caregiver arrived. The disease was efficient. It did exactly what it was designed to do, wreak havoc on Jamie's once athletic body. And eventually Jamie could no longer make the subtle movements with his limbs, the kind of tiny shiftings that we humans do a thousand times a day to make ourselves more comfortable. You're probably doing them now. Don't take them for granted. As the aches and pains in his body became more pronounced and as it became more difficult for him to breathe, he became agitated and anxious. And this made him kind of hard to deal with if you want to know the truth. Hence, our conversation about drugs. The doctor had said that low doses of oxycodone and anti-anxiety meds would not, as Jamie feared, leave him in a drooling stupor. They would help him be more comfortable in his body and relieve the panic produced by what the brain registers as air hunger when it's getting less oxygen. But Jamie, who once had enthusiastically embraced the altered mental states that illegal drugs provided, Stubbornly refused the prescribed drugs designed to ease his anxiety and pain. What is your deal? I asked again. Are you afraid of becoming an addict? <laughs> he could still roll his eyes. Life is not always comfortable, he told me. Why should dying be? He referenced the lyric from Blinded by the Light. Mama always told me not to look into the eyes of the sun. But Mama, that's where the fun is. He told me looking into the eyes of the sun is being able to look at things in their most honest and austere form. That's where the excitement and the learning is. I've spent most of my life trying to embrace the pain that comes with learning. Why would I expect to die any other way? Why would I want to? After a moment I said, are you confusing pain with suffering? Because the former is inevitable, but the latter is optional. If drugs could relieve your mind and body, isn't it possible you'd be more present to the gifts and graces we're receiving? Mightn't you be more receptive to the lessons that living and dying is teaching us? Maybe so, he said, and he started taking the drugs. April, May, June, and July went by in a blur. Living and dying is hard, and Jamie wasn't always at his best. And no matter how much I loved him, neither was I. Decrepitude and dependence take their toll. In my lowest, darkest moments, I found myself pondering that promise I'd made so easily. Was there a way to ethically riddle free? Wouldn't the hospice facility be so much easier for everyone? On August 15, 2015, the night before Jamie's 63rd birthday, we we revisited a conversation we'd had exactly one year before. He had wondered aloud if he'd make it to 63. Of course you will, I said. You'll make it. And he did. On August 16th, the day he was born and the 10th anniversary of the day we met, I slipped in a happy birthday CD mix I'd compiled the year we were married. It had become a birthday tradition. I went back into the bedroom to get dressed because we were... Expecting a few visitors that day, but Richard, his caregiver, quickly came to get me. Jamie's asking for you, he said. I sat on the side of the hospital bed in our living room. What's going on? I feel like I'm dying, he whispered. You are, I said, smiling, but not today. Today's your birthday. When the hospice nurse arrived a few hours later, she uttered a soft, oh. After so many months of watching Jamie live and die, I know it sounds ridiculous to say it felt sudden, but it did. I climbed up on the hospital bed and wrapped myself around him. He was still breathing. But barely. Do you want to remove his respiratory assist, the nurse asked me. I did, but I didn't want him to be anxious or in pain. As she administered, as she administered a last dose of morphine, she spoke clearly into his ear. Jamie, I'm giving you something to make it easier. So close your eyes, you can close your eyes, it's all right. I was holding him as close as he entered his next altered state. It was beautiful and sweet.
0: That was Maren Schokier. And that's it for this episode of the Barflies Podcast. Special thanks to my co-curator Katie Bravo, podcast producer Sarah Ventry, Charlie Levy, David Moroni, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Calexico for our theme music. Learn more about Barflies, including upcoming workshops and performances, at Barflies.org.